if it doesn't fit, you must acquit. 23 years ago, the O.J. Simpson trial and all of its intrigue and celebrity was at full bloom. And you remember that pivotal moment if you were paying attention back then? The moment with the bloody glove when O.J. Simpson tried to put it on and it didn't fit and those words were said by his lawyer, Johnny Cochran. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Now, what was it about that trial that generated such interest? If you were like me, you probably spent more time than you could really justify watching the never-ending parade of witnesses and evidence. What was it that captured our imagination about it? Well, at one level, you want to see where the evidence leads. Will justice be done? As that trial progressed, the country was gripped by it and until finally the verdict came down innocent on all charges. Our passage in Scripture this morning has no less intrigue and a trial of a different sort. This time it's Jesus that's on trial. And Jesus who will be calling witnesses to his own defense. And like any good trial, at the end of it, we will see a surprising verdict. We'll see that really the problem hasn't been lack of evidence the whole time. The problem has been lack of love, love of God himself. The passage is broken down into five sections. Four of them are witnesses that Jesus will call to his defense before the religious leaders. And then finally, a verdict. Lack of love, not lack of evidence, is the real problem. Let's begin by looking at verses 30 through 35, the first witness that Jesus calls, John the Baptist. Now, we've got to remember why it is that Jesus is on trial. All the way back to the beginning of chapter 5, Jesus has gotten himself in trouble with the religious powers of his day. Jesus dared to do something that no one would dare to do. He performed a miracle. He healed a man that had been lame his entire life. We would say a lifetime worth of suffering on the Sabbath. That put him at odds with the religious leaders of his day who had taken God's command to keep the Sabbath and built laws around it. Those people did not see anything to praise and a man miraculously being able to walk again. All they could think about was their religious system being broken. Last week we saw how that hatred of Jesus resulted in Jesus needing to give a defense for himself that his breaking of the Sabbath law was actually okay because he has a unique place, a unique relationship with his father as the son of God. Well, now Jesus will bring his defense from a different angle. He'll bring before these religious leaders a parade of witnesses to the fact that he is who he says he is and he has this unique relationship before the father. He begins in verse 30 by telling us, I can do nothing of my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. This was a theme carrying from last week that Jesus only does what his father shows him to do. That even this defense will be in line with the inner working of the triune God, a true unity in the diversity of the Trinity. Verse 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. A very important little point that Jesus begins his defense with is the 
assumption that he needs to have witnesses outside himself. Now, consider for a moment that you do not need a witness in order to say a true statement. Something can be true regardless of the fact if there's anyone there to verify it or not. Jesus, his claims about himself were true because he actually is the son of God. He actually doesn't need any witnesses in that sense. And yet he's talking to religious Jews. And Jesus himself was a religious Jew of his era 2,000 years ago. And any good religious Jew would have known the commands in Deuteronomy that for something to be established legally, there was a need for witnesses. If you have your Bible, you can turn it open to Deuteronomy chapter 19. Deuteronomy 19 and verse 15. This is not the only place in the Old Testament where this requirement is shown for evidence, testimony to establish something legally. Deuteronomy 19:15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that has been committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Written into God's very law was this high requirement for not just hearsay, not, not just for a little bit of evidence, but for an overwhelming amount of witness eyewitness testimony, two or three witnesses to establish the highest legal requirements. And along these lines, Jesus is going to enter into the system that these religious Jews are using and say, all right, you want me to prove? I will prove for you that I am who I claim to be. I am the son of God. His first witness he calls is in verse 33 is John. It says, you sent to John... And he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. Now, Jesus takes us back to where John's gospel starts, to the ministry of John the Baptist. Remember what John's role was. He was the herald that came before God's king. He was the one that prepared the hearts of the people to receive the Messiah. John's ministry was one of pointing forward. His baptism, his preaching, all of it was to prepare people for the day that Jesus came and he could declare, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus goes back to John. He said, you called for him. Remember, there was excitement, spiritual fervor even at John's ministry. <clears throat> Jesus says that they, even though this excitement started, look what he says happens in verse 34. I'm sorry, verse 35. <clears throat> He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. See, for all the light that John shone to the Judean people, all that he did to illuminate who Christ was, ultimately, very few of the people that were followers of John ended up becoming followers of Jesus. It's remarkable how the human heart has the capacity to be spiritually excited and yet not to follow through, not to follow the spiritual excitement to the lasting fountain of spiritual life to Jesus himself. By this point, John's ministry had become do, begun to eclipse. And it was obvious that all the excitement of John had not translated into 
a, a multitude following Jesus. Jesus tells them, your first witness, you failed to listen to John the Baptist himself. There's a second witness that Jesus calls, and this is in verse 36. As important as John the Baptist's ministry was, there was something even more directly tied to Jesus. That is Jesus' miracles themselves. Look with me in verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. As important as it was to listen to John the Baptist, there is another set of witness that was happening every time Jesus did a miracle. The miracle of turning water to wine, the miracle of healing the official boy's son, uh, the miracle of healing the lame man that kicked off this whole thing, and, and many, many more miracles. All of them are, are little spotlights intended to draw the eye to Jesus himself. And yet, as we'll see a pattern over and over again, people might be drawn to the miracles, but precious few are drawn to the miracle giver, to Jesus himself. Jesus says that his miracles are greater than John the Baptist. Now, I wonder what he, you think he means by greater. Now, in one sense, John the Baptist is not recorded as doing miracles. So you might say that in raw power, Jesus' miracles are greater than John's testimony. That, that would be a true enough statement. But as we keep reading John's gospel, we're going to run into trouble if we take that line of thought. Um, stick your finger right here. Flip open to John 14, 12. I want to show you a parallel coming up uh, several months down the road. John 14, 12. In this passage, Jesus tells us that we as believers will have the great honor of even doing greater works than Jesus himself. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Now, you're going to run into a problem if you say that Jesus is here saying that his raw miracles, either in number or power, make him, his testimony greater than John's. Because when you get to John 14, then you set yourself up to say, well, I guess that means I'm supposed to do even greater miracles than Jesus. There are some believers that understand that part of Scripture as such. They try to live a life of, of victory and claiming miracles and raw spiritual power in their own life. But friends, how, how many of us have ever walked on water? I guess we're supposed to talk to Jesus. We should be cartwheeling across the water. How many of us have turned water to wine? Or uh, I guess if it's going to be greater, it should be turning water to buy energy drink, right? I mean, like our miracles don't top Jesus' miracles, even if God grants us them. We just need to be honest about that. So, so what does Jesus mean? When he says greater, what he's referring to is greater in clarity rather than greater in power. If you think of the progression of how Jesus has been revealing God to humanity, you could draw a line from John the Baptist to step one. Then Jesus' own ministry himself and all the miracles he does. And yet, the people viewing those miracles, the ones even experiencing them, they didn't have the perfect clarity that you and I do about why Jesus came. 
Because all, while his miracles were part of his mission, the culmination of that mission was the cross. And brothers and sisters, we live on the other side of that cross. We can look back and say that the sinless Son of God came to save sinners. And even those who experienced the miracle of having their legs restored or any other miracle Jesus did, they didn't have that clarity that you and I do. Jesus says, if you don't believe John, it's even worse that you don't believe my miracles because my miracles are even clearer testimony to who I am. But the parade of witnesses will continue. And like any good lawyer, Jesus continues to ratchet up the pressure by bringing his strongest witness forward yet still. Verses 38, 37 through 38, the third witness is called. This time, it is the Father himself. Now, we know that credibility is a really important thing when it comes to witnesses. You take the O.J. Simpson trial, for instance, one of the key witnesses, really one of the reasons that you ended up with the verdict you did, was a man named Mark Furman. He was one of the detectives, one of the first ones on the scene. He discovered lots of the evidence. And along the way, it was discovered that Mark Furman had made a number of horrible racist comments. The fact that his character was undermined threw into question all of the evidence that was tied to him. If you can't trust a witness, you can't trust the thing that they are witnessing to. Well, the inverse is also true. The credibility of a witness when they are rock solid provides rock solid evidence. Jesus now calls upon the Father himself, the ultimate appeal of authority to any believer in his day. Verse 37, he says this, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one who he has sent. Jesus has already alluded to the fact that the Father would be one of his witnesses back in verse 32, but here he spells it out more fully. The Jews are upset that thinking that he has blasphemed the Holy One, the Father himself. And yet Jesus says that the Father has borne witness already to who he is. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? There's been lots of speculation. Uh, it could be that it's referring to that moment at his baptism when John baptizes him and the Spirit descends. And remember, there's a, a voice from heaven at that moment that says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. That is the, the father witnessing to Jesus being who he claims to be. It could also be a, a reference to Jesus' whole life and ministry. I mean, I mean, think about the miracle of the incarnation itself. You had angels that came and announced his coming. You had the prophecies that were fulfilled along the way. All the things that are pointing to who Jesus is that the Father wove into history itself. It could be that. I think it's best to understand it in that way. That all of Jesus' life and ministry, all of it is to be understood as God the Father testifying that this is my Son. Notice now that the table is starting to, to be turned. That no longer is it Jesus the one that's being accused. He's starting to accuse them. He tells them they haven't heard his voice, they haven't seen his form, and, and even worse, they don't have his word abiding within them. 
If you go back through the Old Testament and you think about the things that the Old Testament people of God, the grace that they had received, they heard the voice from Sinai. Their patriarch wrestled with God and saw his form. And they were entrusted with the very word of God. And yet Jesus says, you have not heard the testimony of my father. You have missed the witness of who I am, of the one who sent me. This is a charge of total rejection. Even though they were the most religious people on the earth at that moment, they were not people listening to their heavenly father's witness. Friend, if it's not obvious already, I hope you see the danger of assuming that religion in some way makes you someone that is listening and living in accordance with God's will brings. It's very possible to be very religious, to have been born into a family that has deep Christian heritage, to be a regular church attender, maybe even to become a member of a local church, and yet to be far, far from God. When something is said, when God asks something of you that you are unwilling to do, you find a convenient way around it, you silence that voice of his word inside you. This was the case 2,000 years ago, and it's still the case today. Jesus says they've not listened to the Father's witness, and that makes them the ones on trial. Well, we have one final witness. And if you were using the analogy of a sports team, this would be like a football team deciding to run right up the middle, going right into the teeth of the defense. Jesus now calls the point of supposed strength of the Jews of his day, the religious leaders, he calls to the witness stand the very scriptures themselves. This is in verses 39 and 40 and 45 through 47. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Notice that Jesus does not condemn them for lack of effort when it comes to reading God's word. These were not people that lacked diligence or discipline. He says, you search the scriptures and you think you'll find life in them. And that's a true thing. That's a true thing that you hope to find in God's word. And yet... They missed the point of the scriptures because the scriptures are about Jesus. He drives home the point even further down in verses 45 through 47. He, he takes aim now at their patron saint of the day to Moses himself. And 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. If you believe Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? It's difficult for us to understand how a religious Jew back in those days would have thought of Moses. He was the greatest prophet that ever lived. Their hero of the faith. He was their example. Some Jews even thought that he was their intercessor in heaven. And yet Jesus says that Moses 
and the books that Moses wrote, the first five books of the Old Testament, that they actually are a testimony about Jesus. That if you don't believe what Jesus is claiming about himself, that you actually don't believe what Moses wrote. Now to uh, someone who has dedicated their life studying the scriptures, even to be thought of as one of the great doctors of the scriptures as they would have thought of themselves in that day, this would have been considered the greatest of all offenses. Jesus is claiming not just the authority to claim he's the son of God. He's claiming the authority to interpret the scriptures to people that are the keepers of the scriptures. This would land like a bombshell. And it should still land like a bombshell to us today, although in a different way. Uh, even today, there are many Christians that read their Bibles as if the first two-thirds of it, the Old Testament, just give us some nice stories that maybe they're inspired, maybe they are truly Scripture, but they're really just examples for us of how to live faithfully. There are heroes of the faith that we're to emulate. You want to dare to be a Daniel. You want to be bold like Moses. Now, while that's good, and that is certainly one of the things we are to take from the Old Testament, Jesus himself won't let us do that. He tells us, rightly understood, the whole of the Bible, including the Old Testament, is about him. Now, that doesn't mean that it's all about him in the same way. Certainly, you could find prophecies like Isaiah 53 that are very clearly looking forward to Jesus' person and life and ministry. But it takes more work to figure out how does the Passover look forward to Jesus? How does the Exodus look forward to Jesus? Let's just pick a detail out of that. How does the plundering of the Egyptians look forward to Jesus? If we're going to be whole Bible Christians, we need to do the work to be able to connect those dots. Because Jesus himself claims it all testifies to him. Unless you think that Jesus just overreached here. He does, says the same thing in Luke 24. That's when the disciples, after the resurrection, they haven't yet seen the resurrected Christ, and he appears to them on the road. And he walks along the way with them and kind of casually asks, hey, what, what, what happened in Jerusalem today? And they tell him, oh, man, it was horrible. You know, Jesus got crucified. It, it was terrible. And then as he goes along, he, he tells them, you know didn't the scriptures say that this was going to happen, that the Messiah had to suffer and die and then rise again? And then in Luke 24, it tells us, Jesus opened their minds to see how the law and the prophets and the Psalms testify to him. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the reasons why no matter what book of the Bible we are studying as a church, we will preach Christ every Sunday as a church. It's because the whole Bible, when rightly understood, is about Jesus. Now, again, that does not mean it doesn't take work to know how to do this well. It certainly can be done poorly and wrongly. And yet, friends, there are treasures to be unearthed. There's more of the Savior at your fingertips than maybe you ever thought possible if you will come to it with this key to unlock it. And it's all about Jesus. Now, Jesus has brought this parade of witnesses forward to, to testify that he is who he says he is. He is the Son of God. And this brings us to the surprising verdict. The problem all along has not been lack of evidence. It's been lack of love. 
Look with me in verses 41 through 44. It says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another, another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Sometimes we like to think that if we just had enough evidence, everyone would believe. If God would just do a miracle in front of me, if the archaeological evidence would just be a little bit tighter, if I just see writing in the sky something that I could understand. Now, friends, God does use evidence. He's given us tremendous ability to have confidence in what the Scriptures have written, both what's written in the Scriptures themselves and in the disciplines surrounding it, like archaeology and history. And yet, we need to understand that our fundamental problem isn't lack of evidence. It's what he says in verse 41. It's lack of love. Sorry, verse 42. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Now, this is not saying that they lacked God's love to them inside them, as if they were people who had never received any of God's love. Now, every human that's ever existed, existed has experienced more love from God than we deserve. He causes the sun to rise and the rain to fall. He grants our hearts the ability to beat for however long they do, and all of that is a gift. Now, what Jesus is saying here is something different. He's saying that these people that claimed to be God's holy people actually do not love God. What a stinging indictment. Have you thought how horrible it would be to stand before God on judgment day and hear that you had never actually loved God? If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you may have the impression that Christianity is about keeping a set of rules or a certain virtues that we are to aspire to. Maybe even you think that Christianity is a bit narrow because we limit the types of love that people can express to each other. Even this week, a very famous singer just really blasted anyone that uh, tries to take what the Bible says seriously about what love is, saying that that's not actually Christianity. Friend, if that's what you're thinking this morning, uh, let me say first, I understand how you arrived there. And you realize what the Bible teaches us. It teaches us that we are not free to love any way that we desire, that our hearts are actually made to love God. That God sets the terms for what love is. That aside from that reality, love is actually impossible. The fact that we would have limits is actually a loving thing from God. It shows us how to love him. The Bible says our problem isn't just that we don't do the right things or that we think the wrong way. Our problem is much deeper than that. It's that we love the wrong things. Brothers and sisters, those who call yourselves Christians this morning know that our hearts still have the same problem within each of us. 
We may know the right thing to do. We may know precisely what God wants. And yet, if we do not love God more than we love anything else, we will find reasons to cast that love that God has shown us aside. Look at the way Jesus tells us this played out in their lives. Verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? See, instead of caring about God's approval because they love God, instead they wanted the applause of each other. Friends, that is still the same problem with each and every one of our human hearts. We want the approval of someone. Maybe that's a spouse. Maybe that's someone that's showing us affection in a romantic relationship. Maybe that's a teacher or a mentor. Maybe it's our kids. Maybe it's someone at the office. Maybe it's just the culture at large. Friends, maybe it's even yourself. Maybe you care more about your own opinion of yourself. If you love yourself, then you care about what God thinks of your life. That is a trap that Jesus says that these religious people fell into 2,000 years ago. And it's a trap that keeps claiming souls to this day. Our problem isn't lack of evidence. That's not the reason people don't believe and follow Jesus. It's lack of love. And friends, that bad news becomes the occasion for the good news of the gospel. Because for those who don't love God with their heart the way we ought to, for those who find every excuse to instead look for the approval of people and even ourselves, God sent his perfect son to die for sinful hearts like ours. He sent a son who never sought his own approval or the approval of anyone else, who only sought his father's approval, even to the point of death, saying, not my will, but yours be done. He sent a son that was so full of the love of God that he didn't shy back, even from giving his life on the cross. He sent a son that would withstand the full wrath of God so that those of us who would believe in him would never face it ourselves. He sent a son that would rise, rise to new life, so that he could grant new life to you by giving you a new heart, one that now loves God and wants his approval above all else. Brothers and sisters, the good news of the gospel of Jesus is that while we fell into the same trap as these religious people 2,000 years ago, Jesus has lifted us out of it if we come to him faith. Friend, do you want delight in your life? Do you want true joy? What is the thing that God asks of you? It's simply to love him with your whole heart. And the way you do that is by giving your life fully to Jesus. Maybe this morning will be the first morning for someone in this room. Maybe they, like the religious people in this text, have known lots about God, known lots about his rules, but they've never had the love of God within them. Friend, if that's you this morning, you can leave as someone totally different if you'll put your trust in Jesus. Turns out that Jesus wasn't the one on trial. 
the religious leaders were. And even more surprisingly, we were. But the good news is that the one who brings these charges also did everything that's needed for us to go free, for us to be lovers of God now and forever. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song. It has these words as a part of it. It says, I was blinded by my sin, had no ears to hear your voice, did not know your love within, had no taste for heaven's joys. Then your spirit gave me life, opened up your word to me, through the gospel of your son, gave me endless hope and peace. Brothers and sisters, our problem is not lack of evidence. It's lack of love. And yet Jesus can change our hearts to grant us that which God requires of us. Let's pray.